Time now for the quote of the week. Boy, it was just over 50 years ago, it was February 21st, 1972, Richard Nixon became the first sitting U.S. president to set foot in the People's Republic of China since, boy, it was established in 1949. His meeting with Mao Zedong is considered a pivotal event of the last century and huge, far-reaching implications that are on full display today because it opened the door for full diplomatic relations, economic cooperation, that transformed, you know, obviously the geopolitical landscape with China now growing into inevitably the largest economy in the world and arrival to the U.S. throughout the world. Western trade and investment finance, not only an increase in the standard of living of the world's most populous country, but it also financed China's military and state security apparatus. The Chinese aggression, though, including the breaking of the international agreement regarding Hong Kong's independence two years ago. I mean, we know about their cyber attacks or spying technological theft, intellectual theft, political interference, and other efforts to destabilize Western democracies. I think it's laid bare, though. It was a total repudiation of the doctrine that if we increased economic interaction and trade with China, it would lead to liberalization within China. Well, it's done the opposite. And that provides the context for the quote of the week by Jason DeSena Trenert. He's the CEO of research firm Strategus. They specialize in economics, politics, and policy research. In quotes, if Chinese belligerence and increasing authoritarianism over the last two years have taught us anything, it's that no amount of trade and international cooperation will instill what are generally considered to be Western values and other civilizations who have no desire to adopt them. Trusting China to do anything other than what is directly in its own best interests especially when it comes to trade-offs between economic development and issues like climate, would seem to be in direct conflict with history and common sense, and it poses serious geopolitical risks to the international democratic order. End of quote. That China will operate in its own best interests and is not looking for a win-win with Canada or any other Western nation, and this is sadly despite numerous warnings from the Canadian military, CSIS, every other Western intelligence agency, despite a litany of aggressive actions, it's that sadly that lesson is still lost on so many of our political leaders, as well as some in business and academia. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. You know, for the last two years, we've been inundated with stories, COVID stories, about overwhelmed intensive care units. I mean, many of the restrictions that we've lived under have been rationalized by the fear that if the COVID infection spread, our ICU uh, would be overwhelmed. Which brings me to the stat of the week, and, and it's thanks to the excellent work by Blacklock's reporter. The federal government states that it sent a total of $3.2 billion to the provinces in emergency health care funding during the pandemic, and that was to help alleviate the stress on the hospital system. Yet, and here's the shocking part, the Department of Health reports that six out of 10 provinces failed to increase the number of intensive care unit beds to help them cope with COVID. I mean, say what? The biggest fear was hospitals being overwhelmed, ICUs not able to handle the serious cases, and yet when the money was made available, six out of 10 provinces, their health authorities didn't expand the capacity. And the Canadian Institute of Health Information compared the numbers of intensive care unit beds staffed and in operation, that's the key, they were ready to go, staffed and in operation, from April 1st, 2020 to February 14th this year. And this is what they found. Prince Edward Island, 
ICU beds dropped from 40 to 12. New Brunswick, down from 197 to 113. In British Columbia, ICU beds staffed in an operation fell from 825 to 728. Newfoundland, down from 95 to 91. Quebec, unchanged. They have 1,296 beds. Nova Scotia, unchanged at 122. And then we had four provinces who increased the number of ICU beds that were staffed in an operation. Alberta went from 353 to 392. Saskatchewan, 122 beds to 142 beds. Ontario, 2,012 beds to 2,343 beds. And Manitoba, from 86 to 124 beds. But I'm astounded at that. It was a shock to me when I read that 6 out of 10 provinces actually reduced the number of beds that were staffed and ready to go in operation. But that's the other, there was one other side, by the way, to this that shocked me. It's how few beds there are. Add up the total. How few beds there are for a country of 37 million people. Wow. It sure wouldn't take much to get over capacity. And I guess that's what we experienced, or at least that was the fear, seems, seems to me, every day of the pandemic. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know, the federal government's ordering the bank accounts of those people who supported the truckers' convoy, along with some relatives, to be frozen should have been on the short list for most important stories of the year. I mean, people who donated to a legal protest were not charged, let alone convicted of anything, other than supporting a protest that the government didn't like. I mean, the political weaponization of people's private bank accounts, I think, set a precedent that should scare the heck out of everyone. By the Prime Minister's own words and actions, the government believes there are views and opinions that are unacceptable despite being perfectly legal and should be punished as the freezing of bank accounts clearly illustrated. But it's the same attitude also that underlies the government's latest iteration for censorship of the internet, with the government pushing to muzzle legal speech online, but they find it unacceptable. Private property rights, though, are one of the fundamentals of a democracy and one of the foundations of prosperity. Systems that don't guarantee private property rights consistently have lower standards of living, low levels of economic growth and innovation. My point is that we shouldn't take the assault on your property rights lightly, but it appears we have, including in most corners of the media. And that deserves a goofy award, which carries over into the federal budget, which laughingly states in quotes, a safe and secure financial system is a cornerstone of our economy. Well, let's ask the hundreds of innocent Canadians who saw their bank accounts frozen, how safe and secure they feel. And also other reports of people taking money out of banks in the aftermath suggests that many others don't feel safe and secure either. I mean, it's arguably what happened there was the best argument for Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies to date, with many justifiably concerned with this, that this is the beginning of a very slippery slope. Today, it's the truckers' convoy supporters. Tomorrow, it could be someone who runs afoul of the climate agenda, because clearly, in the government eyes, anyone who doesn't subscribe to the climate agenda is holding an unacceptable view. So let's fast forward to the federal budget, which has earmarked money for a review of cryptocurrencies and how government could regulate them, because right now the government has no ability to actually control them, as they just proved they were able to do with the big banks and other financial institutions. With cryptocurrencies, though, there's no centralized control. The individual controls their Bitcoin or whatever, secured on the blockchain. But the budget goes further, authorizing money to review by the Bank of Canada the need for a digital currency 
although that's a little late. You know, the Bank of Canada has already been developing a digital currency for at least two years. My point, though, is that the political weaponization against the supporters of the truckers' convoy realized the worst fears of those who worry about a digital currency because it'll give government unprecedented powers to control our financial lives. I mean, the government be able to know the source of our money, where we spend it, how much in short. Uh, every transaction you make. That may sound strange to some people, but consider most of us already use electronic banking. We don't pay with cash that often, but rather it's a credit card or maybe Apple Pay or the like. A digital currency would do away with the need for government to send out checks, for example. Instead, everyone would be direct deposit. But beyond the ability to monitor our transactions, government could also you know, potentially deposit or potentially withdraw from our personal bank accounts, maybe as a penalty for behavior they didn't approve of, including maybe parking tickets or other fines automatically going out of your account. But they could go beyond that. As Al Gore said during COP26 in November, that they're going to have the technological ability to know what everyone's individual carbon footprint is. They'll know the origination. Is it really a big stretch to see governments rewarding those that meet their emission standard and punishing those that don't? And the point is, will the Charter of Rights protect us? protect our financial privacy, et cetera. Well, come on, the government's willingness to free supporters of the trucker convoy bank account, I think gives us a very clear answer on that. And as I said, we should all be concerned. Hey, that's all the time we have this week. I just want to remind you though, I'm going to be doing the first Q&A for our members of the Inside Edge. It's coming up uh, the 14th at six o'clock. I'm looking forward to it. It's not going to take a long time, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes, whatever. We'll just answer some questions. Don't get a chance to chat very often. So you'll be able to do that. And every member of the Inside Edge will have a chance. But hey, if you're not a member of the Inside Edge, hey, you can go ahead, go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and jump on and you could join the Inside Edge. There's lots of things. I mean, great content there. I'm just talking about one of the added features, which is doing the Q&A, but you can do it. So check it out. In the meantime, have a terrific weekend and a terrific week.